What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, the life and death of Ethel Rosenberg, the accused Adam spy. We'll talk about who she was before she was framed by the FBI, before she called their bluff and went to her execution. Anne Seba has written a really good book about all of that. We'll speak with her later in the hour. But first, the big loser on infrastructure his name is Donald Trump. We're speaking before the final vote, but we expect something like 18 Republican senators to vote in favor of the infrastructure bill after Trump demanded they vote no. It took a lot of significant concessions by Democrats to win their support for the bill. Was that a good idea, the Democrats making big concessions to help Republicans step away from Trump? For comment, we turn to Joan Walsh. Of course, she's national affairs correspondent for The Nation and author of the book, What's the Matter with White People? We reached her today at home in Manhattan. Hi, Joan. Hi, John. How are you? Good. Nice to see you. Likewise. Well, before we talk about the bill, let's talk about Trump. Remind us what he's been doing lately and how horrible and threatening he remains. Well, some of what he's been doing is laying low as we learn more and more about the, the ways he tried to meddle in the Justice Department and, you know, get his his henchmen specifically to interfere in Georgia and the the way that people I did not that I formerly did not think were terribly honorable like Jeffrey Rosen, the, the acting AG, turned out to be honorable. So I think he's been creating distraction. He has not stopped his big lie, but he did take a break to rail against infrastructure. Uh, he hasn't shaken the full coalition, the full Republican coalition yet. M most Republicans will vote against it, obviously. He got Tennessee's new Senator Bill Haggerty to make, you know, add, try to add amendments and slow it down. He's also, I think, he's picked up. He's picked off a couple of members of the original working group, um, and they happen to be members who are facing re-election in 2022. It's Todd Young of Indiana and uh, Jerry Moran of uh, Kansas. They were both talking about supporting the bill, and really the only reason we think that they flipped 
was the threats from Trump. So it's it's having an impact on at least some of the folks who have to face re-election and could still have a primary challenger. He did threaten to withhold endorsement for any Republican who, in his words, was foolish enough to vote in favor of this deal. Nevertheless, it looks like 18 are defying him. How significant is that really, not just for them, but also for us? I think it's fairly significant. You know, I, I, I don't have it as a, a principle to help the Republicans out uh, very often. But at the same time, I think it's really dangerous that we have a party that looks that has looked like it's going down the road of, you know, being an anti-democratic Christian right white nationalist party. The majority of them have coalesced around Trump in terms of his big lie. So watching some of them gain or exert their independence uh, is it's encouraging. It was Rob Portman, who's not running for re-election, but who tried to give Trump credit for the infrastructure bill that he wanted. Well, this was not what he wanted, and he's not going to take the credit. He is susceptible to flattery, as we know, but I think it's too little too late. <laughs> so it looks like 18 Republican senators were able to vote for the infrastructure bill because of Biden's strategy of instead of having one gigantic multi-trillion dollar bill that contained funding for both traditional roads and bridges, but also the new progressive conception of human infrastructure, supporting early childhood uh, education, free community college, paid medical leave, some climate initiatives, and, and to pay for all of this by taxing the rich and corporations. The original plan uh, was to do all that without a single Republican vote and take it through the now famous process called reconciliation, which we've all learned a lot about over the last several months. Then, then the campaign in 2022 would have been that every Republican opposed roads and bridges for their own districts. But instead, Biden made this strategic decision to split off the easy parts, the traditional parts, the roads right. and bridges part, and make that a separate bill to give up paying for it by raising taxes on the rich and corporations so right. that he could have a bipartisan bill. And a lot of us complained about these concessions and complained about the whole strategy. Why should Democrats help the Republicans become a more reasonable party? Our friends have been asking, why not just try to defeat them? with strong progressive achievements. So what do you think? Well, I think we can defeat them in certain states, but not lots of other states. And the other problem is we have two Democrats in our coalition, in our in the Senate caucus, who sometimes vote like Republicans with Republicans. And we've talked about them before. It's Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin, Arizona, where she should get a challenger. West Virginia, where that seat is his for the rest of his life if he wants it. And so there's only so much Biden can do. He can't invent those two votes. And he knows that bipartisanism is really important. I mean, cinema has taken the lead on this. Now, here's the tricky part. I think it's OK to, to do it this way as long as they get most of what they want and what it, or almost all of what they want in this $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill. but there's still no guarantee they will get that because there's still no guarantee that cinema and mansion will go along with all that spending and they both made noises about how they won't but it's possible that that biden will be outplayed i'm not i'm really not sure 
Then we have to look at the concessions that the Democrats made. A spokesman for Greenpeace said about the bipartisan bill the Senate is, as we speak, about to pass, this looks like the Exxon infrastructure bill. That's because it dropped the requirements that the electric grid was, would be required to replace fossil fuels with renewables, solar, wind, and hydropower. And that, of course, is a huge concession. Uh, my personal pet peeve about the Democrats' concession is that they gave up not just funding it by taxing corporations and the rich, but they also gave up a provision to support the IRS with more resources to go after high income tax cheats and corporate right. tax cheats. You know, we know Republicans don't like taxes, but they have voted for some taxes. And this is an effort to collect the taxes the Republicans have already voted it's for. You just, see my problem. Yes, it's just it's an effort to enforce the law, which certainly applies to you and me. I've been audited but doesn't apply so much to the, the wealthy. So it, it's really hypocritical of them. You know, they relied on that old controversy of 2013 where the IRS was allegedly flagging the nonprofit applications of Tea Party folks. And then when they did a full study of it, which I re reported on at the time for Salon, there were lots of progressive folks that, that were flagged too. So it wasn't, there was no partisan BS at all. But anyway, yes, there was already a huge cut to transit investments. I think Biden wanted something like 55 billion and it went down to 25 billion in the last version. And I believe it's now down to 15. I could, I could have that wrong by a few quarters, Nichols. It, it, it took another cut and that's problematic as well. So we don't like the concessions, but let's note it's not just Joe Biden and Chuck Schumer who supported doing it this way. It's also Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and our other progressive heroes in the Senate. They have all supported this strategy. So maybe they know something we don't. I assume that they do. I always I always leave that door open that, that at least at least those people know something that we don't. And so it is reassuring to me that particularly uh, Warren and Sanders support this approach. Uh, I'm sure they both came to it the kind of the way we've walked it through that it's really the only way to get 50 votes plus one plus Vice President Harris on the reconciliation version of the bill. But there have been no firm commitments on that. Uh, so, you know, they could wind up disappointed, but I'm cautiously optimistic they're going to get a, a decent reconciliation bill. Let me ask you about that a, a, a little bit more. There's sort of going into the weeds here a bit, but it's important. Some progressives have been arguing that none of this bipartisan bill was necessary, that all of it could have been part of the larger $3.5 trillion bill that's headed for reconciliation, we hope. And in the abstract, of course, that's true. 50 Democrats plus the vice president can pass a bill through reconciliation. But the question is, would all 50 Democrats unite right. in support of this? Tell us what you know about this. There's still no guarantee that Manchin and Cinema will do the smaller reconciliation bill, which, you know, we consider smaller and they still consider too big. So I think this was the only way to do it. I don't think it really was an option to just say, oh, we're going to get 50 plus one and we're going to do a, you know, four and a half trillion or whatever the addition would be by ourselves. I, I don't think that that would have worked. I've heard that Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin made it a condition of their voting for the bigger bill that the administration and the party would support this bill in which they've been on the negotiated committee. Have you heard that? 
Yes, I, I I have heard that, and I you know I haven't confirmed it, but I think but it sounds true. They both it's important to both of them, and there might be a few other people that you know haven't quite come out of the closet on this, who are in more conservative states or have a more conservative bent, who like the idea of this of doing something in a bipartisan fashion. It's clear that that this was very important to Mansion and Cinema, uh, and and maybe a few more. So I don't think that the four point five trillion or whatever was really going to happen with 51 votes, which means it was really not going to happen. So, you know, this is where we are. I still, as I said before, I don't think that they won firm commitment from Mansion and Cinema to doing the size of the bill and the way that it's paid for, which worries me. So, you know, it could get whittled down a little. Okay, maybe a little. Uh, but there are still progressive things in it that are, are, you know, that should that should be deal breakers. And I think also paying for it. I, you know, I'm not worried about this deficit, but I still think that sustained, sustained, sustainable uh, social investments do have to be paid for eventually by an increase in the tax burden on people who are shirking their burden. So I would really hate to see that be part of the compromise, although it could be because Manchin's not, you know, not big on taxes. Although, on the other hand, he did not vote for the Trump tax bill. So he, you know, he's got a He's got a part of him that is about rich people and corporations paying their share, just maybe not as large a share as you and I and Bernie Sanders or and Elizabeth Warren would think is fair. One more thing that remains, and that is that the Senate passing a bipartisan infrastructure bill does not make it a law. Now it has to go back to the House. It has to go to a conference committee between Senate and House members to reconcile the differences. And then the full House has to meet and vote in favor of the final bill. And some progressive members of the House have been saying they won't vote for it without significant changes. I wonder if you have any comment on that. You know, I think if it stays pretty close to the way it is, they really won't have much choice because Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi can pass the bipartisan bill. She's got all of the moderate Democrats and she's also got some Republicans so she can afford to let some progressives pull off on that. And she probably will um, to just say we don't like the way it was done. There's not enough climate stuff. When it comes to reconciliation, I think it's going to be a tougher uh, sell because their, you know, their margin is like four seats right now. So if they go too far and they lose, you know, four moderates, problem solvers, conservative Dems, whatever we want to call them, she needs progressives to to back her up on the on the, the reconciliation bills. When push has come to shove, the progressive caucus gets concessions, but it usually does what needs to be done. Joan Walsh is national affairs correspondent for The Nation. Read her at thenation.com. Thank you, Joan. This is great. Thank you, John. Now it's time to talk about the Rosenberg Adams spy case 
Julius and Ethel Rosenberg were executed in June 1953 for the crime of conspiracy to commit espionage. They left behind two young sons. The execution was shocking at the time and still is, especially since the U.S. government had not executed a woman in nearly 100 years and never in peacetime. Now, 70 years after the trial, there's a really good new book out about Ethel. It's called Ethel Rosenberg, An American Tragedy. The author is Anne Seba. She's a former foreign correspondent for Reuters and an award-winning biographer. Her books include Les Parisiennes, about French women under the Nazi occupation. She's also a senior research fellow at the Institute of Historical Research at the University of London. She lives in London, but we reached her today on Crete. Anne Seba, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. First question, how come you're on Crete and we're not? <laughs> well, I'm very sorry about that, um, but I have to be there for, for reasons I, I won't bore you with. It's actually a wonderful place to work, and I've brought a lot of my Rosenberg books out here and done much of the research and the writing while I've been here. Uh, let's start with what historians now know about the Rosenbergs. Julius was a spy for Russia during World War II, but he did not give them the secret of the atom bomb. They had real atomic scientists at Los Alamos helping with that. And Ethel was innocent. She was framed by the FBI with the help of her brother, David Greenglass. The review of your book in the London Review of Books begins, no one thought Ethel would be executed. Is that true? I think that is true. You have the Deputy Attorney General who says at the end, she called our bluff. And J. Edgar Hoover himself, who was so keen to try and get both of the Rosenbergs to name names, realized, as we'd say today, the optics of killing a woman, a mother, really wouldn't look good. And he tried somehow not to execute Ethel, but she was not prepared to name names and she was not prepared to confess. What could she confess to? Why is it important today to understand Ethel's motivation? Why did she think it was a good thing to support the Soviet Union during World War II and, and into the early 50s? Because we're talking here, of course, about Stalin and Stalinism. Yes, I, I don't make any bones about the story. Look, it's really simple. As you said, we now know Julius was a spy. He was a spy ring recruiter and he was involved in passing secret information. Ethel was his wife. She was certainly part of the conspiracy in the sense that she knew and she probably approved, but it's not a crime to know something. And I think that's why it's really interesting that the government knew all along the case against Ethel was weak, shaky at best, she was arrested and charged so that she could be used as a lever against Julius. It was hoped because they had this secret information, and we now know that that was called Venona, the Venona decrypts, but they couldn't, the, the government and the FBI could not release what was known in the Venona decrypts because they hoped to use it subsequently. So they were acting with one hand tied behind their back and they ultimately concluded that actually 
um, they had to go through with this. But it matters, the resonance is, because when a government willingly decides that the life of a citizen is expendable, then that's something that we all need to be concerned about. And, and Ethel was used, she was used as a pawn, as a lever, and the government knew that they did not have strong evidence against her. In many ways, Ethel was completely ordinary, daughter of immigrants, a poor Jew growing up in the 30s on the Lower East Side. But in some ways, she was extraordinary. Let's start with her singing voice. Well, I think she was extraordinary because she grew up in such poverty with no encouragement from her family and really was single-minded in pursuing what she enjoyed, which was singing and acting. So her mother decided that she was actually a snob because she liked singing Italian arias and she was interested in Russian peasants. And the, her, her mother, Tessie Greenglass, Ethel's maiden name was Greenglass, never encouraged her in any of this, but Ethel pursued these aims nonetheless. I think she was extraordinary because everything she did, she put herself into wholeheartedly. So when she became involved in a strike in 1935, and by then she was a communist, she was instrumental in almost leading the strike and discovered at that point that actually she could achieve something. She, she could do something important. So her communism, it should be said, was twofold. On, uh, in, in the first place, she was an idealist. She believed in improving a lot of impoverished people like herself on the Lower East Side. But it was also a way to beat fascism. And in 1936, that's really the crucial year Ethel and Julius had friends who went to fight in the Spanish Civil War. And so she threw herself wholeheartedly into her communism at that point. Later on, when she became a mother in wartime, she decided that being a good mother and a better mother than her own had been was very, very important. So she went to mothering classes. She tried to be the best mother that she could be. She thought that everything was discoverable through books. And as many of us may know, our children don't always respond to what we we read in books. So, you know, she was thrown off course. She wasn't um, particularly strong in a health sense. She was born with scoliosis, a back problem, and that gave her migraine. So um, she was extraordinary to that extent. And you have a wonderful phrase, the Ethelness of Ethel. Explain exactly what that meant in this context. Well, I think if you look at her determination to be a good mother, for example, she would get on the floor and play with her children. She encouraged them to call her by her first name. And many of the other mothers where she lived decided that she was actually peculiar. But, um, you know, this wasn't a normal way to behave if, if you had a play date. I think her single-mindedness, which she learnt through these other aspects of growing up, when she was in prison in her early 30s, she was only 37 when she was electrocuted. And I think this determination, I talk about the ethelness as a work in progress, because I think she was learning how to write. Some of her letters from prison are extraordinarily moving, and she was reading a lot and trying to improve her writing. I've been fortunate to meet the child psychologist who helped 
her with Michael, her first son, who really was a challenge. And the psychotherapist believes that if Ethel had lived longer, she probably would have trained herself as a psychotherapist. So I talk about the Ethelness as a work in progress. I think she was a clever girl. She skipped a year at school and she was determined to try and make something of her life. And as we all know, that didn't work out. But I think she would have done had she lived. The person who did the most to get her executed was her brother, David Greenglass. He was spying for the Soviets at Los Alamos, and he tried to get the Russians the secret of the A-bomb, but the sketches that he, uh, what, six years later said that he sent are pathetically simple and, and useless. The most important thing he said, he took back in a 2001 interview when he admitted he had lied on the witness stand when he said that Ethel typed the key documents. How could he send his own sister to the electric chair? Well, the role of Ethel's younger brother, seven years younger, David Greenglass, really is why this is such a family tragedy, a tragedy of Shakespearean proportions, really. But um, let's go back to the charge, first of all, because you, you said in your introduction that Ethel was innocent. I actually don't find the words innocent and guilty particularly helpful because they're such binary terms. So they were charged with conspiracy to commit espionage. And that's because conspiracy is almost impossible to disprove in this case. Of course, Ethel, having a close relationship with her husband, Julius, would have talked to him. And really, it's clear that Ethel knew what Julius was doing. And as I say, probably approved of it. It's the second half of the charge that I take issue with, espionage. There is no evidence that Ethel was involved in spying. The KGB did not have a code name for her. Nobody believes that the KGB was dealing with her directly. So the government has a problem, or the judiciary at any rate, the, the judge and the jury, how are they going to prove Ethel and Julius guilty. And here's where these multiple miscarriages of justice come into the trial. And that's really what I think my book is about. If, if there's one message, it's about the importance of the rule of law, which was flagrantly disregarded in this case. And so the judge, even though he knows that they're being tried for conspiracy to commit espionage, repeatedly accuses them of treason. They were not being charged for treason. They couldn't be because it, it was during wartime and also because the rules in a case of treason are quite different. You have to provide two witnesses to any overt act. And yet both the prosecution and the judge frequently use this word treason. So the jury felt that they were dealing with a case of treason. But back to David. So there is no overt act other than what David comes up with, which is perjury. He invents a story to provide an overt act to show that his sister was guilty. Why does he do it? Because it's a plea bargain. His own wife, Ruth, is never indicted, and he serves a much lesser term in the event he's released after about um, nine and a half years. What David says 
And we now know this is invented because his grand jury testimony has been released and he's done, he did interviews when he came out of prison. He only died in, in 2014, so the grand jury testimony was released in 2015. And the story that David invents, the perjury that sends his sister to her death, is that he saw Ethel type up the notes that he brought back from Los Alamos. And he admitted afterwards that actually he couldn't remember who did the typing, maybe nobody did the typing, or maybe his own wife had done it. Now, the typewriter is absolutely key to this whole evidence. And that's why it, it's David's perjury that is the key evidence. The last two years of Ethel's life at Sing Sing, she spent in solitary confinement. Today, we're told there are more than 80,000 men, women, and children held in solitary confinement in prisons in the United States, some for years, some have been there for decades. There's a campaign now to end solitary con confinement. What did you learn about solitary from Ethel's letters? How extraordinarily resilient she was. I mean, she did sink into a period of depression. And amazingly, at one point, she was allowed to see her, her own psycho her own psychiatrist came to visit her. I didn't think he was much help. Her husband was brought occasionally in a cage and sat outside. What I learned about Ethel, as I say, is partly the resilience and, and the courage. Ethel was a brave woman who came up against incredible forces of history that she could not possibly overcome. I think it also meant that she had great difficulty in fighting a good defense because her time was spent either worrying about the sons and, and they had this joint defense. So there simply was not enough time to think clearly, but the letters to her sons are remarkably evocative of how she tried to prepare them for a life when she recognized she wouldn't be there. And I think being in solitary confinement was what ultimately persuaded her that the only legacy she could leave them, obviously there was nothing material she could leave them. So the only legacy as she saw it was loyalty. And she believed that loyalty to Julius trumped betrayal, which is what she saw all around her, and particularly the betrayal of her mother and her brother, the betrayal of the Greenglass family. And, and I think that being in solitary gave her that time where she decided there was no other way out. So at the time of the executions, their son Michael was 10, Robbie was six, that's always the worst part of it. I have friends who say, if I were forced to choose between my children and my political values, I'd choose my children. You've told us what Ethel's thinking about this was. How do you understand Ethel's choice? I don't think she had a choice. I think she was completely trapped. How on earth could she have lived with her sons if she had confessed to something that she had not been an active part of, which would have sent her husband to his death. Would her sons have valued her, respected her, been able to live with her? No. And I think she understood that very clearly. One more question. 
this story is so terrible, it's kind of unbearable, but you spent years with it, researching it and writing about it. What was that like for you? How did you do it? Well, um, I think it's important to try and put historical perspective to all of this. I think we know communism is a discredited philosophy today, but it still needs to be understood. You know, of course you can say with hindsight that Ethel was foolish to stick with the Communist Party after the um, Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. Of course that's easy to see now, but as a historian, you need to understand what the pressures were at the time. You need to understand why in the 19, late 1940s, America was so terrified of Russia having an atomic bomb, which they thought Russia wouldn't have for at least five years. So make the comparison between Klaus Fuchs, who was the beginning of how all this unraveled. He was a real spy, a real physicist who passed on important information to the Soviet Union. And the British arrested him very quietly. They didn't make a big fuss about it. They gave him 14 years, which was the maximum in England for espionage, and he served nine and a half. And compare that and how, of course, the Klaus Fuchs case unraveled, leading to Harry Gold. Harry Gold, the courier, led to Green Glass. And how when, when the Americans discovered that Russia had exploded an atomic bomb, they were absolutely terrified and they made as much noise as possible and as much publicity as possible when they eventually arrested Julius and Ethel because they believed that this would make them look strong. And, and of course, it's political. It's, it's tied up with the Republicans wanting to get back into power. And, and one needs to understand this real fear and not just brush it off as McCarthyism. Of course, it is that. But the terror that, you know, children might be being sent to shelters if Russia really was going to explode a bomb. So I, I think the historical background makes it so important. And of course, the individual story is is what sheds light on, on the historical background. And Seba, her book is Ethel Rosenberg, An American Tragedy. It's really good. And thanks for this book. And thanks for talking with us today. Thank you. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books. The theme music for our podcast is by Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. You can find out more about the Start Making Sense podcast at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. 
like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.